We've been looking at the book of James. We've just been kind of pouring through it, trying to figure out what this guy is talking about. James is a half-brother of Jesus. Um, Many believe that the book of James was written as the first uh, book after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so here we have a church uh, that is a completely new way of life from what uh, uh, the religious had been. And, and, And let me tell you this, the culture in this day was very religious. I mean, you want to go to church, they went to church. They did, they checked all the boxes, they did everything, right? And so Jesus comes and he changes the rules. He does everything different. He gives us a new covenant. The believers, all these powerful, amazing things are happening among the believers. And now the church is persecuted and it's scattered everywhere. And one of the first words of instructions that is given to these new believers, these young churches, is this this, this book of James that James writes, this instruction to the church. And so we've been through this story and, and he's saying, listen, we know you're in trial. We know you're in tough times. And he says, you should consider that joy. At the beginning, and he says, because during this time of trial and even in that trial, you'll be tempted to give up the faith in what's going on, what we've been called to, the hope that we profess. He says, so uh, know that the the temptation and this trial that you have during that time, you should you should take joy in that because we can be confident that in that God is going to work and make us more mature, uh, bring us to places we never thought we could be or even we we knew we couldn't on our own. He goes then into saying, hey, that, that our faith now, this new covenant, this new way is way more than just checking the box and going through the motions, but it's a way of life. And that at our faith, he says, uh, really a measurement of our faith many times can be what we end up doing and how we end up living our lives. And, and he goes on to say that faith without works is, is literally dead. And so we discuss that for a little bit. And then it moves on to talk about this kind of wisdom that we need in order to understand that this wisdom that when we look at it with our own minds and we go, well, all of that, that sounds good, but I don't even want to do that. I don't even know how to do that. I don't even, he talks about this wisdom of, of, of walking with Christ, that it's only through God changing our heart and our mind that we're even able to grab this concept of new life. And it, and it's not, we're supposed to live this life that is contrary to how we really want to live And it's just our duty to not be happy. Instead, it's like, listen, trust this new way and find this wisdom in God that it changes our wants. And so it actually becomes what we desire and what we, you know, this journey that he calls us to. And then last week, in in James 4, it, it talks about how then that we submit to God. How we walk through Uh, This journey with God and how we lay ourselves down and what it really means to submit to God. And we talked about these really these conversions of faith that scripture leads us to. One being the the conversion to Christ himself in this new way, in this new covenant. And then this conversion to his body where we're not called to go at it alone. We're called to, to literally, whether we like the church or not, when we become a follower of Christ, you you are the church. And so that we have to come to this place where we understand that I'm just not a, a participant who looks in it from the outside, but that God is calling us to say it's not your church or their church or his church. It's our church. We're part of it. And then being this conversion to the mission of Christ. So to Christ, to the body and to his mission, what he's doing in this world. And it gives us a lot of answers to um, when we feel powerless, when we, we feel like, wow, you know, where's God in this? Or 
if God is, you know, where is he in these, in, in these things? It really gives us a, 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 an opportunity to look back at ourselves and say, where, where am I in that journey? If I am not willing to submit to God, is there any wonder why I don't sense his presence in this? Maybe I need to go through this time of trial and temptation or whatever to draw myself, to be drawn back to him. What is it that he wants us to experience that to be drawn to him? And so from joy to trial to temptation to faith and deeds to wisdom to submitting to God, and we come into James 5. And really what James is doing here in James 5, is he's kind of pulling it all together. And he says, okay, so I want you to think about these things in closing. And a lot of times when we look at scripture, we take this big thing and we find the finite truth in it. We dig into that and we find the context and the history and the cultural ramifications and all this stuff. And we can spend so much time in this little thing, which is usually good. And, and as I'm looking at this scripture today, I think sometimes you need to back out and go, okay, here are three really important finite truths, but together they equal this really big thing that if we don't grasp this thing, we're going to miss the little things. And so I think what James is doing here, uh, every Sunday I, I've got in this pattern where I will go away from the house and, and I will just read through not just my notes, but I'll just read through the chapter again. And I'll just be like, what is the bit? What, God, what do you want us to not miss here? What, you know, if we're not going to miss the forest through the trees, what is the thing where, and I think this is what um, James is bringing us to here in chapter five. And there are three topics he chooses that we'll see how they relate to each other towards the end, okay? So on that outline, you'll see there's three main points at the beginning. I'm going to give you all those right now. I'm going to give you all of them in front. And so don't be distracted by them, but I'm going to give them, give them to you now, and then we'll work back into them, okay? I think James calls us to do three key things. The first one is to be proactive in deeds. To be proactive in deeds. The second is to be patient in suffering. And the third is to be prayerful in need. Those are the three points, okay? And what we'll find is each one of these actually has being proactive in something beyond just deed, being patient in something beyond just suffering, being prayerful in something beyond just need. But what James is doing is he's using that specific part of it to teach us a greater truth. Okay, so that's the focus of each one of these. So let's look at James chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, go there. If not, you have the outline. It, the whole scripture is, is, on the, is on the back of, uh, back of the outline. Let's look first at uh, this first part. Proactive indeed. What is he saying here? Verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. So he's kind of beating around the bush at the beginning. He's not going to get to anything serious. He's kind of tiptoeing around things, as James always does. He's just, I wish he'd get to the point. Verse 2, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Is there a different translation I could read to make this feel better? Um, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Verse 4, look, the wages you have failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing 
you. Now, let me give you a little, little bit of what's going on here. Many theologians argue that in James 5, James has been speaking to the brothers, to the saints, to the church. Many, many believe that he has turned his attention right now to the Pharisees and the leaders outside of the church who are persecuting those within the church. Whew. So it's not us, right? Many believe that that's what he's talking about here because it was. I mean, the early church, they were, they were the poor. They had given up everything they had. They were, they, had, they were sharing their homes. They were sharing their food. They were sharing everything that they had. And, and if someone was in need, they gave to them. It was, it was what Jesus taught, okay? And so he, he is pointing out something that he, he's, he's putting his attention on those who are persecuting his people at this time. A lot of people believe that that is the case. And, and, and right after this scripture, in verse uh, 7, he comes back and then he addresses the brothers again. And so there's pretty much evidence that this is probably what uh, he uh, is uh, doing. But as I look at this scripture... And I read all of these things. Here is what uh, I've realized. Is that whenever I read this, I get really uncomfortable. Anybody else relate with that? I get a little, okay, really uncomfortable. I don't even want to, I wanted to skip it today. My God, isn't there another verse I can teach on for a little bit? What? Um, That's your question. James uses, and and I'm going to ask for an answer. James James uses illustrations at each one of these points to make a specific point. Why do you think he chose the rich in this scripture to make his point? What is it? Why the rich? Answers. At least one from each section. Because they became, maybe they were comfortable. And what's the problem with that? Anybody? Huh? Complacency? Self-reliant? But none of us are that. Oh, very unaware. Self-unaware. And remember, everything they're talking about is talking about how we, they live their faith. Because they were a culture where faith was at the center of who they were. We're not talking about modern day America where the church is kind of pushed to the margins. You know? It's at the center. So they're dealing with this in context of faith. What else? Why the rich? Anyone else? Pardon me? Yeah, poor is already humble. You know, um, Kirk, I had a really interesting tension with that when I was in Africa last spring. What blew me away about being in Africa around people, I mean, when we went, we went into places that were like there was, it was not even a cash society. It was just all, um, I mean, they would barter and they would live off what they, what they harvested. I mean, this was just their way of life. I mean, they had like one of everything and that was it. And then what they had is what they had. And yet their faith was so rich. When we did church, we did church. It was ridiculous. I got the opportunity to teach in a room half this size with 300 people crammed in it. And there were six windows with 400 people looking in. The worship was ridiculous. We showed a video for it. It was just crazy. Literally, the biggest guy in the tribe was standing by the door keeping people out. And I just thought, wow. At first, I thought... How, how over the top and fake and odd is this? Is this just kind of a toxic, unrealistic faith? And I just really believe that, that at that moment, it was like, it was like 
I heard that scripture of Jesus reading from the scroll of Isaiah when he said, I've come to preach the, the good news, the gospel to the poor. And I thought, maybe this is why the gospel's for the poor. Because they actually receive it. Everything they have. It's their only hope. There's something about that humility and that. There's something about it that maybe we don't have. What else? The rich. Why the rich? The rich have the power to what? To bring change. Why is that a ba- a, maybe a bad thing? Or mm, That's a good point. They can actually fix some stuff. They have the resources to, to make some change. What else? It, here's, here's the thing. This is directed, whether or not it's directed to, the, to these early Christians, uh, to the oppressors of the early Christians, the rich of their... Whether or not it's directed to them or not... Uh, here's a lesson for us. It's really a warning also to us that we don't do the same thing, right? It's not really a hidden agenda because here's the, here's the problem. We are the rich. It's hard for us. We read a scripture and we say all that, we, we look at this descriptor and we go, oh no, I'm not rich. No, everyone in this room, guess what? We live in the top 1%, 2% of the world. We have things and luxuries. What has become normal to us is so above what the majority, 98, 99% of the world has. And so we're not, we're not, even if we're not talking about just stupid rich in our eyes, we just have so much. And there's a whole other side story we need to think about that of just being thankful for that and realizing all of that. But even with that, there comes a, there comes a warning. All the things that we've talked about here, we, uh, in verse 2 and 3 says that our wealth is rotted and moths have eaten our clothes. So it, wealth really tends to, tends to corrupt us. What we have and we build our identity on is dangerous when we really succeed and we start believing what other people think of us, that we're really awesome, you know? Because a dangerous part when we start thinking, hey, I'm here and I have what I have because I am awesome. It's a dangerous place in faith. And I think it's obvious why. And if, if it's not, we'll get there in a moment. There's another warning here in verse 4 where it says, look, the wages you failed to pay, blah, 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 that wealth comes with responsibility. Any resources we have, I don't care if it's money, whether it's time, whether it's a talent, a gifting, or whatever, is given to you, not for you. Given to me, not for me. But it's given with a responsibility. Scripture tells us he gives and takes away. But we need to think about it in that context. Wealth does so much. I think wealth uh, comes with this temptation. Verse 5, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Now, here, I, I, I mean, I can think about that. There are things that I'm not tempted to do. Guess why? Because I can't afford to do it. So I'm so spiritual, I don't do those things. The, the more you have, the more tempted we are going to be to do more. The things that... We might not ought to be doing. And so there is a warning. Because we do live in a culture where we think money solves our problems. We, we do. And we even feel it. We're like, well, no, but if I had all this money, I'd do a lot of good with it. We just need to remember, God doesn't need us to do that. He can take care of it. He can, you know, 
All right, so let's let's kind of move on. One is just a warning to us. We we do need to remember um, the danger of that. And Jesus was really clear. You know the scripture, it talks about uh, in Matthew, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. A lot of people, and I've even taught this before because I, I, I had been given information and found information that talked about this narrow gate that it's possible, but it just took some struggle and everything else. That Really, this is just kind of a proverbial you know, statement. It's, it's really not this specific. It's kind of like when he says, hey, you, you know, you, you, you spit out the gnat, but you swallow a camel. He also said that. You can't swallow a camel. You know, take, it would take years. Um, but he's making a point here. In that context, he was, the rich, remember the rich young ruler had just come to Jesus. And he said, hey, Jesus, what would it take for me to enter the kingdom? And Jesus looked at him. He said, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And it says that the rich young ruler walked away very down. And then he said, see, guys, it's harder for this guy than it would be for you or for, because there's a danger in that wealth. But here's the thing. How much is too much? How much is too much excess? When do we know we've spent too much and we've allowed it to corrupt us? When is it be, has it become dangerous and we need to be afraid of it? And is it okay to drive this kind of car but not this car? All these lines here. Let me give you this really good thing that I need you to hear me say. I really don't know. I don't know. I think that's why it's so important that was, as Chris spoke about several weeks ago, he talked about wisdom. And it's like wisdom is not knowing whether it's A or B. Wisdom is learning to walk with God. So that we just respond to what he says in that situation. So how much do you have is too much? Or what do you do with it is too much? That creates corruption in your own heart and mind? I don't know. But what he turns it to in this scripture is very clear. That it's not just about what you have and what you do with it. It's what you have and what you don't do with it. If what we do, if our lifestyle, if our life puts us in such a place. Where we are not able to help anyone else. Or if our focus is so much on what we are consuming in our own life because we can. And we're not pointed towards being a light. And as Christ said, ministers of reconciliation for others. To give hope to others. Then we've totally missed the point. And in fact, the scripture here, right at the heart of this. In verse 4, it says, look, the wages you failed to pay. That is the indictment. It is the indictment. In fact, at the end of James 4, the last verse there. As a transition into chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, look at it. Here's what it says. It says, if any of you then know the good you ought to do and fail to do it, sin. That's what he's talking about here. I think that um, the individual believer is obviously a microcosm of the individual church or the collective church. Altogether, And we seem to struggle with the same issues. What we struggle with as individuals will be what we struggle with as the church, as a church and as the church, okay? This is something we have to think about. Um, we're in a day right now where churches all over the place and our city and all over the place are saying, and you may not even be familiar with some of the language that's being used among church leaders and things like that, but this is the whole argument between the missional church and the 
the attractional church, which is mostly known for the gathering on Sunday. And then the missional church goes, no, we're about descending throughout the week. And we're, and there's this posture of, well, we're better than you and we're better than you. Who are you to say we're better and what's right and what's wrong and everything? Scripture throughout the Bible is clearly says both. We need to do both. And I think the missional church that is sent and our church that we are called to serve our, our city and our area and the poor and those in need scripturally, we're focusing on this thing. If we spend all our time trying to be incarnational, being the hands and feet to, uh, of Christ and never spend time to be about exalting God, then we are sinning. And in the same way, if we are a church that is all about coming together and, hey, you know, love your new shirt. Great. You know, how's everything going? Oh, perfect. Let's, you know, I got my big Bible and we'll sing the songs and, and it's all about Sunday and we never live on mission. Then we are sinning. You know, and it's the same thing in our individual lives. It, it's not just what we do. It can be what we do, but that's got to be, you've got to tune into what the spirit is telling you on that. I can't tell you what that is. Well, I might be able to help you. But so many times it's what, it's not just what we do, it's what we don't do. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Number two, patient and suffering. So proactive indeed is one, he calls us to. Number two, patient and suffering. Last two are quicker. The word suffering there really means hardship. It, it's going to be down in verse 10. It really means hardship. But it was interesting as I was trying to study the, the, the history of this word, where it came from. It really took a strange twist for me. Because it wasn't just about a suffering or a hardship, but there was, there's a word in there that, that also means um, lust. So I was like, what in the world is that? And I struggled with that. And let me just give you what this is talking about. It's talking about suffering when things are bad. And also there's a type of suffering we experience as believers when things don't go as good as we hoped. When... Um, when there's this, this way that we just, we um, literally crave or lust for in our faith for it to look a certain way. And it doesn't go that way, you know, where it's just like, God, intervene here. And it's like, but here's what I want you to do. it, And it doesn't happen. You go, oh, I wanted that so bad. Um, and it doesn't happen the way we think it should or in our timing or all of this stuff. This is suffering, too, in this context. Okay. And it says we need to be patient in suffering. Be patient then, brothers, points it back to the church, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. That's interesting. I, I couldn't help but when I read that, I, I thought of, of myself as a parent standing outside the door, listening in to my kids. What's going on there? I'm about to step in. They're fighting. I'm about to step in. I know what really happens. Or they're getting along great and I'm proud of them. I'm about to step in. I, I have this word picture of, of that. Verse 10, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's a, a redundant theme throughout James, that there's always more grace 
He's full of compassion and mercy. So it says, talks about a farmer. Why the farmer? It says, be patient. He says, as the farmer waits for the land to yield his valuable crop, and how patient he is for autumn and the spring rains, you too be patient. Why the farmer? What is specific about the farmer, you think? Well, it's a lot of work. That's good. It's a lot of work. A few blisters, there's some calluses, probably some scars and some wounds for when you took a face plant on the whatever. You're not in control? What are you in control of? You're not in control. You're not in control of what? The rain? The weather? The whatever? What are you in control of? What can you control as a farmer? Working. Working. What else? Planting. When you plant. What you plant. How you... What else? Okay. You harvest when it's ready. What you harvest. What you planted. Good. Fertilizer. Yeah, let's get specific. We're... Exactly. I, I think those are some of the, what you do with it during that moment, during the, before it's harvested. What else? What's that? How you utilize. That's good. I didn't even think of that one. Good. What else? Hmm? Okay. You could, you could, you can water it. What else? If you can afford it, you can water it. <laughs> those sprinklers, those big sprinkler systems are expensive. What else? Pest control, insecticide. But what we're talking about is that I love this word picture as a farmer because a lot of times we think about this faith journey and we just think we, God just wants us to wait and just suffer in it and whatever. But there is this journey that we're supposed to be actively doing the things, tilling and working and putting our hands to the plow and putting on the fertilizer at the right time and the insecticide and to, to watch out and to observe what's going on. And, oh, we've got this kind of bug here. Let's deal with this. Or what does the manual say on this day? And when should we plant? And when should we harvest? And how do we know it's ready? And all this work that goes into it. You don't sit idle. What it's saying is, is during those times when things you're not realizing fully, there's all this other stuff we're supposed to be doing. And just let God, if we do that, just let God take care of the rest. He's going to bring the rain. He's going he's to make the seed grow. It's going to happen. Okay? I think we need to, the, I think about the farmer, and we, I think we need to remember that we need to be patient in suffering because if we don't, if we lose our patience, we'll lose our hope. And we give up on God way too soon. And, and before we even do any of what he, he's called us or asked us to do as a part of the equation. And here was a twist that I thought of. Verse 9, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. Isn't it interesting? He's talking about the farmer, and then all of a sudden he talks about stop picking on each other. Um, it's in t- times of the trial and the, and the suffering and things not going like you want. It's our nature to turn against each other. I think about the amazing race. Anybody watch the amazing race? I don't. Jen loves it. Uh, but all I see in the amazing race is all this, this semi amazing race. And the fun part is us watching each other. They fight against each other and they argue and they had a you know, and it's like, I could never be on the amazing race because people would think I am just a terrible person. Uh, 
And I think about this, this thing that when you get into the stress and you get into the moments of things not working the way you want, and I think individually we do that and, and, and collectively we do that. When things don't go exactly the way we think, we need to watch the danger of us turning in towards each other and grumbling against each other. And the scripture says that that is what the judge is standing outside of the door watching. He, it, it's not saying that the judge is going to be there watching whether or not the rains come. Or all these things we typically measure success from in the Christian faith. It's whether or not how we've treated one another in that season. I think we need to think about that. I was thinking about that if we're not patient, we will lose our unity. And then it goes on to a promise. It says, be patient and you will be blessed. And we've spent a lot of time talking about what that blessing looks like. And I'm reminded of James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. All the way to the back, one of the very first... Uh, things that he gave us. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may mature and complete, not lacking anything. Does anybody remember what not lacking anything means? Anybody? Not lacking anything, exactly. No. But, but yeah, what it means is not that you'll have everything. It means that you'll be content with what you have. You can't feel like you're lacking in anything if you're completely content with where you have. And, and if you're completely content with the journey that you're on and where you're at and you see God in it, regardless of where you are, you'll be lacking in nothing because you understand and you have the wisdom of God and, and you know that you're on a journey. And that you're just plugging away in that. Okay, and the last one is prayerful in need. And we'll hurry on this. Prayerful in need and plenty. Uh, Look, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He shall call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The prayer, jump down to the end of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. What do prayer and praise, it says, if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing praise. What do prayer and praise have in common? What, what do they have in common? They're both, it's communication to God. It's really kind of the same thing. It's interesting how we think of worship as just being singing. And prayer is just being when your eyes are closed like this and you're going. And yet... We're, we're instructed that our life is worship and we're instructed to pray without ceasing. It's all about putting our focus at all times in trouble and happiness and sickness, putting our focus specifically on God and bringing us back specifically that all issues are about prayer and our affections on God, that we are given credit truly where we are given credit where credit is due, that our hearts and our minds and our affections at all times are pointed towards him. That we're not just keeping it for ourselves. Okay. So James is writing this, uh, the book of James, and he's coming to the end of it, and he's summarizing it, and he gives us these three topics. And if you were to look at what he has written, something is happening here. There's a pattern that he he has followed in each one of these sections of the scripture. Has anybody caught it, what he's done? For each issue, what he's done? He has started with you and me. And he's addressed an issue that you, that, that I may, may deal with, something we have to deal with. And then he takes it and he turns it inside out. And he says, it starts with me, the issues personally, 
And then we have to think about how it affects us corporately, from me to us. And then in each situation, whether it's about uh, the money or the, or the suffering or the prayerfulness, he takes it and then he brings it back and he says, then with us, let's make it about him. Every single time is what James does. He says, it's not about you. It's about us and it's about him. That's what Jesus said. When, when they quizzed him, the teachers of the law leaders uh, quizzed him and said, what's the most important command? He said to love God with all your heart and love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, a new command I give to you that you would love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He says, by this, people will know you are my disciples. And he brings it back to these, to these three things. Me, us, him. James reminds us of these last three points here. One, our personal responsibility, the significance of unity, and the source of our provision. And he's all tying it um, back together. I think this has been the pattern for the last couple uh, Sundays we've had together in the book of James. That, that James is really taking something and he's addressing a powerless faith. And he's, in, he's addressing a powerless church. And he's saying, let's stop being the reason that God is not moving in our own lives, among each other, in our church. Instead, let's learn to submit to him and what he wants to do. Understand what it is in our own minds, in our own personal ways, that is just acting as a barrier to that. Corporately, how together is there's a barrier to that. And then how us keeping it about us and placing these things as idols in our life instead of God is becoming a barrier to this kingdom breaking through, to this thing God wants to do, that we can focus on this. And here's what I believe. We pray every week that the Spirit would come and move in each one of us on Sunday, that the Spirit would convict each one of us in each area of our lives that we need to deal with. And I believe that each one of us, at one point or another, there's something that has rung true to you today. And you go, ah, oh, I don't do that. Or, ah, oh, I do do that. Or, maybe my marriage would be better if I would do this. Scripture tells us to pray for one another. How much do you pray for your spouse? Um, maybe there's something you desperately need God to intercede in your life or in your journey. Or even if it's just the wisdom to understand what the heck is going on right now in my life. Whatever it is. There's a call today to go back and be a farmer and, and, and to plow and to plant and to throw some insecticide on there and some fertilizer. What are the things? Where are we are? What are we neglecting? Have we become the oppressor by what we've neglected? Whatever it is for you. Today, my prayer is that each one of us, we sit back and we just maybe start with a prayer of repentance and confession and just say, God, because God doesn't really need our promises, you know? He just wants us to say, God, this is a problem. I do this. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Help me. Now, we might then be able to come to the altar, worship, pray, take communion, and move through our week. And God's continued grace. And that we would see the scripture come to life where it says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. James 4 Verse 2 and 3 says, you do not have because you do not ask God. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. And I don't have it written down here, but I believe the next part says 
uh, that you would spend what you gain on yourselves.